welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Chad Cook back to the podcast to take a deeper dive into the world of pain. In case you haven't yet listened to our previous podcast episode with him, which was episode two, let us reintroduce you to Dr. Cook. He is a physical therapist who has devoted his career to advocating for rehab professionals and the role of a clinical researcher at Duke University. In this episode, and in typical Dr. Cook fashion, he brings an evidence-based philosophy of the beast that is pain in the therapy world. Using the pain and disability drivers model, which he helped develop, he categorizes pain using a global, whole-person approach, and he offers clinical examples and intervention approaches for each category. We get into the details of how to assess pain-adapted versus pain-non-adapted patients, and how to approach each in the clinic. Lastly, Dr. Cook digs into the literature to share his view on how and why manual therapy and exercise are effective strategies to alleviate pain. As always, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and go ahead us and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. Let's welcome back our first reoccurring guest, a friend of the show, Dr. Cook. Thanks so much for coming back on to chat with Cassie and I. Hey, thanks for inviting me back. I really appreciate it. Makes me feel like I didn't mess up so much the first go around. <laughs> you did great. You did great. So we had to have you back like we said we would. Uh, but that brings me to the reasoning why we brought you back on episode two of the podcast. If you haven't, if anybody hasn't listened to it, please go listen to it. Early on, I asked you a question, and I remember you replied with talking about pain-adaptive patients and non-pain-adaptive patients, and you mentioned you were hoping we'd get a chance to discuss that. And after listening to it, we really didn't get a chance to discuss it, so we felt like this was a good opportunity to bring you back on, discuss that topic, but also talk about pain in general and the different types of pain. Well, I think it's a good idea. Uh, there has been a lot of advancement an understanding of pain and understanding how to manage pain and certainly a lot with respect to manual therapy. So I think your listeners will probably uh, be interested in hearing about it. Yeah, I think it'll be great because maybe it'll guide us in different directions in our treatment. And as I was mentioning earlier, before we went live, I'm, I think there's been times where I failed patients because I've held on to them for too long doing the same type of interventions and we weren't getting anywhere. Or maybe I was writing them off and sending them out the door and not giving them any direction. And it was a frustrating experience for probably both myself and the patient. So hope we can learn a lot today. Well, I will say this. I think everybody has failed, but it's, that makes them real. Uh, I, I think they're, if somebody tells you there's, they've never had a patient that hasn't progressed and done well, then they're lying. Um, there are so many variables that play and, treating chronic pain is so challenging that, you know, you're going to have some losses along the way. And I think everybody needs to know that. And, and that's because it's not just you and what you're doing with the patient. The patient's got a role in this. Society has a role in this. There's so many different things that, that really influence outcomes that we're just a bit player, a, a, a cast member in a, in a big set. I like that analogy because I'm a big analogy guy. 
Speaking of never failing, I think Cassie would tell you that she's never had a she's never failed a patient. So no, never. <laughs> but that's why I get those reoccurring TOS, neck pain, <laughs> thoracic stiffness patients back at least twice a year. Uh, <laughs> but let's get into it, Doctor Cook. How how do we define pain? Well, it's we now have a common definition. I know that when I graduated and when I studied in the eighties and graduated in the ninety. It really wasn't a common definition of pain. Most of the textbooks had a very simplistic definition that it's, it's basically a bodily response to harm. But the International Association of Study of Pain has actually come up with a specific definition for this as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And it sounds like double talk, but basically what it's saying is that it's in the, in the general understanding of pain, it is reflective of tissue damage, but it's also in the absence of tissue damage where somebody thinks that uh, it's a threatening situation or maybe their uh, system is primed to a point where there doesn't have to be a nociceptive response to actually trigger a person's pain. Can you expand on that, um, on, on the word for, for pain? You're mentioning it's a personal experience, biological, psychological, social factors. Are there times where maybe there's not even tissue damage and it could be more psych psychological, social for the patient? There is. Um, for example, nosoplastic pain, which is a term that hasn't been around that long, is where if you can think about the desert when it gets a really heavy rainstorm and the water rushes and cuts like rivulets within the sand and then the next time it rains it's easier for the water to flow in that area if you're suffering from pain for a very long time your neural matrix your the way your brain processes that stimuli is going to be primed it's going to be more efficient so it's easier for small things, small stimuli to actually trigger a person's pain experience. And then it can even get to a point where it doesn't have to, to have a stimulus to actually reproduce the, the symptoms of the patient. And a classic example of this would be fibromyalgia. And I know that you all uh, treat this particular condition, but it's a central, centrally mediated uh, disorder it's not psychological. A lot of people will say, well, it's psychological or, you know, it's, it's purely in their brain. Well, all pain experiences in the brain. So that, that covers all of it. But with fibromyalgia, it's, it's, the system is basically changed to the point where the traditional things that would evoke pain, like touching something hot or touching something sharp, those don't have to occur for them to actually perceive pain. Wow. So it kind of stumps me when you have a patient that have they had so many traumas in their life that they are hypersensitive to pain or they have such a high pain tolerance that they don't even feel pain. And then the next person you get in, it's completely opposite. This is their first surgery, first time they've had a problem and you can't even touch them. They're so painful. Is there a like research or some psychological definition to that? Well, it's, it's part of the fact that everybody's pain neurometrics is different. Um, I, I heard somebody describe it like this, that if you were speaking to an alien and you had to describe a human, 
you would say, but I have two arms, two legs, two eyes, a mouth, a nose. There are common features of humans. There are common features in the way that the body processes pain. But in reality, if you look at humans, there are short individuals, tall individuals, we have different colored skin, we have different morphologies, some are big, some are thin. There are differences among humans, just as there are differences in the way that people process pain. And they respond differently to stimuli, they respond differently to interventions. Um, one of the things that was most eye-opening to me was an understanding from the OMRAC RC group, which is an international consortium that looks at a lot of osteoarthritis and pain-related conditions. And they said, even when you're dealing with efficacious treatments, people will respond differently because they pain modulate differently. So what you're experiencing in the clinic is the variability that all patients may have. People do not respond the same way. Which, by the way, I think that makes our jobs more interesting. True, um, and, yeah. And why we see the differences in results when we use similar interventions with patients. You're right, because it, it right, you get maybe the same diagnosis and it would just be too easy in non-skilled care if we kept giving the same every person had the same pain response, we kept, it would be almost a black and white, a map of exercises to give, right? And that makes it individualized. It makes it skilled care where we have to have our role in being very skilled with the interventions we provide because everybody's going to respond differently. And so many things influence their response. I mean, when we talk about contextual factors, that where, you know, as Cassie said, where they came from, where, you know, their social environment is one, their, their psychological expectations about the treatment, um, where they are in their life, whether they're dealing with anxiety, depression, all of these things mediate their pain response. And and it's it's worth finding, you know, asking a few of those questions. I was listening to your podcast with uh, Zachary Thorne earlier today, and he was talking about, you know, making sure that you ask questions build that into either the intake or your initial history, ask those social questions. It's also worth asking expectation questions. You know, what do you expect to get from this? What are you hoping to get out of this? What are your objectives? Um, because expectations are very powerful drivers of a person's response to treatment. So over the course of studying pain and all of your years of research at Duke, how have you seen this kind of change and evolve over time? Like initially there wasn't a lot of research on pain, so we knew very little to now all these different components that kind of evolve into pain. So where would you say that uh, outline is over time? I think in, in two major areas. The first one is labeling and our understanding that you know, it used to be that we, there was no suspected pain, and that's this the traditional things that we learned in school were very good at. That you know, if I if I slam the hammer on my thumb, I'm going to experience no suspected pain because my nociceptors are going to trigger the pain system. It's going to the brain is going to perceive it as pain. There's neuropathic pain, and that's basically pain um, that originates from the nervous system. So any type of ner nervous system related problem. You can look at myelopathies, radiculopathies, but you know, herpes zoster would be a, a form of neuropathic pain. And then as we mentioned earlier, nociceptive 
or excuse me, nosoplastic pain, which is really a, a bit of a combination of both, but it's it's where you don't have to have that peripheral trigger for a person to to experience pain in the brain, and, and the brain becomes overly sensitized to um, painful phenomena, um, and, it, and those are really troubling and difficult to treat. Yeah, absolutely. So. If I'm understanding you right, taking this away right, you're saying there's three types of pain, nociceptive, neuropathic, and nociplastic? Yeah, that's the that's what the International Association Study Pain will define. But it's also worth noting that a person doesn't just have one of those. They can actually have combinations of those, so they blur the lines on those. Um, but when you're looking at a patient and how they describe their pain and or their pain experience, and where you're considering the origin of their problem, it's good to have an understanding of those three types. And you'd also ask, you know, what is what are the biggest things that have changed over time? I think the second thing would be um, an understanding that phenotyping pain responses or pain conditions has value as a clinician because you recognize that people will have different responses to treatment or have different responses to assessment methods and then knowing that just because somebody has a label of a diagnosis in reality they may have sub uh, sub phenotypes that related to their pain experiences that may give you better perspectives on how to treat those individuals do you know of anything a model or anything out there that can help clinicians you know put labels or treat these types of pains um maybe looking at these drivers at all? Yeah, I would definitely look at, um, first of all, always going to, to the International Association Study Pain website would be a good idea. Um, I think, I mean, this is obviously personal, but I, I was part of a team that built a, the Pain and Disability Drivers Model, which was created, we created it in 2017, and we actually did content validity assessment in 2019. We published a paper looking at the initial efficacy of it in 2020. And it basically breaks down the patient's primary drivers of pain and disability into five categories, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, uh, pain and disability related to comorbidities. And in other words, other health related elements that are not related to what you're treating the patient for cognition, thoughts, and emotions, and then the last would be social. So those five elements and in understanding where the patient is on that pain and disability drivers allows you to tailor your treatment to what that person needs the most. I, I would advocate for that one because I think it really simplifies how to um, understand how pain is affecting that individual what type of pain it is, and what treatments might be best for that individual. Is there an intake that you guys have created then in that article? There is. And I know my colleague, and he's a French-Canadian, Yannick Chut-Signon Leflamme, who's out of Sherbrooke University. He is building uh, public-facing documents that will eventually be available that include the, the testing components, but our most recent publication together actually talks a little bit about the assessment method. 
Okay, yeah. And maybe if you could send us the link to that article and that way we could post it in the show notes for the listeners out there that'd like to check that out. I think that'd be great. I'm happy to, and I'll send you the image too that we created. It's an infographic, which I think is probably as useful as reading the paper because pictures tells a thousand words, I think. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, let's talk about that driver model then. Let's dive deeper into that. You gave us kind of those categories. Let's go into the nociceptive pain what you might see in the clinic for nociceptive pain and what's kind of historically the common interventions provided. Yeah, this would be your classic. And I know that in your all's environment, you treat a lot of hand, shoulder, elbow. So this would be your, your traditional things you would see, um, shoulder, uh, shoulder impingement, rotator cuff tear, um, a carpal fracture, uh, any of these very clear mechanistic related problems that tend to have pain during movement or there's a weakness associated with it. So a lot of the testing is about provoking those or identifying weaknesses and the treatments are the real bread and butter things we learned in school, strengthening mobility related elements, um, or stabilizing and if an individual has too much movement, uh, bracing. All of those things fit within that nociceptive pain category. Is there anything that you know of, Dr. Cook, in the literature that's showing to be more successful than others for the nociceptive pain? Not as, not, not really. Okay. Um, I mean, certainly movement. Um, when you're dealing with a body specific region, there isn't something that is prevailing. Um, if you're looking at holistic, Definitely physical activity, movement, and lifestyle elements tend to make a bigger difference. But if we're looking at shoulder, elbow, wrist, hand, uh, regaining uh, normal mobility, regaining strength, creating a healing environment for the tissues, I mean, they're all going to have uh, pretty powerful effects. So it seems like nociceptive pain is more like what you and I see, Steve, in the clinic more consistently than the other types of pain that we've talked about so far. Yeah. Like that's more of our caseload, I would say. Yeah. Unless you're dealing with, you know, carpal tunnel is a neuropathic pain. Cubital tunnel is a, is a neuropathic pain. Okay. If you're dealing with any misdiagnosed radiculopathies as you know, we're nice to see also that it's a shoulder problem. It's actually coming from the neck. You know, that's a neuropathic pain. Uh, if you're dealing with, uh, any type of nervous system hypersensitivity, um, which is very, it's almost nociceptive. So that would be a person that had maybe a central sensitization in which they've, they've had this amplified um, symptoms related to maybe a, a true nociceptive problem, but it, they seem to have exaggerated symptoms related to that. That would, we fit that within our pain and disability drivers model under neuropathic or nervous system hypersensitivity. Yeah, that makes sense. We do see TOS quite a bit. So I guess that would follow yeah. more on the neuropathic. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of started um, with, with the next one. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about neuropathic. You gave some great examples, carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel, thoracic outlet of radiculopathy. Um, what's the literature saying about that for common interventions that have been effective to help these patients? Yeah. For non-pharmacological interventions, nociceptive. Pain likes to be smashed, pushed, crushed, and treated aggressively. Neuropathic, not so much. You want to decompress, glide, 
be nice to it. Um, it's like dogs and cats, right? Dogs, you can beat them around and pet them harshly. Cats, you have to be a little bit more gentle. And so more gentle um, approaches with that. But the pharmacological aspect tends to be useful in patients with neuropathic pain, so we can't forget that piece is to get a little bit of help on that end of it. And, uh, and certainly going in and doing more centrally based elements, like aerobic exercise, resistance exercise, it has a systemic approach for people who have nervous system hypersensitivity. So that might be a consideration on individuals who are willing to adopt something that takes a little bit more effort than just a region specific exercise. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned pharmacology, though, for it being successful. Anything stand out from a medication standpoint? Well, the one that's recommended most right now is gabapentine. Sure. Which is probably why you see it administered when your patients have radiculopathy or, or something like that. But certainly any of those, I think it's an anti-seizure drug, if I remember correctly, those tend to fall within um, the category for patients who have neuropathic pain. What about going down to comorbidity pain you mentioned? What would you say that is some common interventions that are successful? You know, when I, when I went through school, I used to think of patients as their diagnosis and just, you know, what's going on with them in that particular region. And then even when we started using self-report outcomes measures, you know, the region specific measures were supposed to only capture that particular spot of the shoulder problem we're only addressing the shoulder problem with the questionnaire. In reality, the patient brings a lot of other health conditions with them, whether that be COPD or arthritis, or they come to you with a shoulder problem, but they also have low back pain, or clinical depression, or any of these elements. And true mental health disorders, sleep disorders, all of those fall under this comorbidity. And what we found is, is that these tend to predict recovery of patients. So if a person has a number of comorbidities, that they have chronic widespread pain, all of these really uh, nullify their ability to improve or recover as well versus if they were only that specific problem. And we also know that if a person has a number of comorbidities, it actually influences their outcome measure. So if you use the the spotty or spady for the shoulder, and you give it to somebody who has low back pain, they're not going to score as well because of their low back pain. Um, their, their functions are affected by other things other than the primary problem that you're looking at. So it influences your, your outcomes measures, it influences their progression, and we wanted to recognize that and have clinicians look for those things knowing that it, it was very prognostic. Do you have a good example, like with your own patient experience with somebody who was experiencing comorbidity pain? Like you said, they came in with a different body part problem, but maybe they had low back pain. Do you have a good example for us at all? I do. I, I have a, I, I treated a gentleman for a very long time for low back pain and he was a spinal cord injury. And when we were giving the, the measures to score, he would score horribly and and I was like, we're not progressing, we're not progressing. And he would say, no, my low back pain is improving a lot. I said, well, your scores are terrible. And the scores were terrible because he had a spinal cord injury. 
And so, I mean, that, that is a big example, but in reality, you'd be surprised at how things like COPD or diabetes or other chronic disorders can markedly influence a person's health status outcomes. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't even think about that. And then also, and the challenge with that is trying to get reimbursement, right, when they're scoring so darn poorly. That is the hard part of this is the objective measurement, because there's been many of times where I've treated patients with common thing we see here, and I'm sure a lot of um, listeners treat is, you know, what's so common is the degenerative rotator cuff. Um, maybe they're coming in with a tear, and they, they know they got that imaging, the MRI, they know they have a tear in the rotator cuff, but I've gotten patients where they've improved their range of motion, we're improving their strength, but they're scoring so low on their PSFS, which is what we use um, for our outcome measure. But it, it, it's it's challenging to get clin- uh, patients to see that, hey, you're improving clinically, range of motion is getting better, strength, maybe your joint mobility is improving, whatever it may be, but they're still maybe they're in pain or their pain is gradually decreasing, not as fast as it like an insurance, you know, doesn't love that as you know. You know, I, and not to go out of bounds with this statement, but it, it's something that needs to be said. Our patient reported outcomes measures are not perfect. They're, they are proxy measures of what we hope represent the person's true recovery. And you'll see a bell curve of accuracy from the, because the patient reports how they feel they should report. And um, in, in many cases, they'll either go to the extremes. They'll go to the extremes that they're significantly better because they want to appease the clinician, or they want to tell the caregiver how bad this is so they amplify their scores. So there, it is not a perfect measure, and sometimes what we see in improvements in the clinic don't necessarily reflect what the patient actually reports. And that's a conundrum. Um, unfortunately, it's the best we have right now. I mean, I, I've said this before and people say, okay, well, then what's better? Um, I don't have a better, um, but I think it's worth recognizing their limitations. What would your takeaway be, Dr. Cook, for someone who has a difficult patient with comorbidity pain if just to set them up on a roadmap for success? I would tell them that to talk to the patient and say, you know, we found these other elements and we know they're going to influence your recovery. And, and then perhaps find out where that patient is in their um, willingness to target those other components if they're something that could be managed. You know, this is where lifestyle management tends to fit in really nicely. And, and whether that be through diet or reducing some poor behaviors or, you know, addressing the sleep disorder that they have or, or something, um, it's worth discussing that with the patient and saying this is going to contribute to your shoulder problem, your elbow problem, your back problem. Um, are you, you know, have, what are your thoughts about including this and the approach and, and maybe talking about some strategies? Um, knowing that the majority of comorbidities that tend to really progress tend to be acquired and behavioral based. Um, you know, I think of uh, McMinnis's study back in 1990, where they looked at what, what causes morbidity and mortality. About 30% of the cause was based on health behaviors, uh, high risk behaviors. 
So it's difficult for people to change their behaviors. And some people might just say, no, that's not going to happen. Um, but it's worth the conversation. You know that would be my takeaway. Yeah. You know, Dr. Cook, I was just thinking when uh, Steve made his comment earlier about reimbursement. So just of late in the last couple of years, you know, I don't know if you're practicing currently in the clinic with patients or not, but our documentation has really had to beef up in the last years, specifically PT more than OT. You know, Steve and I are both OT, so it's a little different, but in the beginning of our assessments, we have to document the comorbidities that has an impact of a low, moderate, or high category, and that contributes to how many visits were allowed per patient per diagnosis. And I think that's just the hardship of that's going to get worse in the future, specifically for PTs, because I believe that that's kind of the driver of how many visits they're approved. Uh, we'll see if there's a translation in, in, in OT reimbursement and, and visit approval in the future. But I think that comorbidity is a huge impact on you know, our future reimbursement in, in clinics. Yeah, I, I actually appreciate that they recognize that, that the comorbidities do influence the outcome and the speed of recovery of an individual too. So, um, you know, and, and for your listeners, by the way, if you're looking at which comorbidities, if you were to create an intake form where the patients would go in and just check, a good place to start is either the Charleston Index, Charleston Index, or the Dayo Index which really outline those comorbidities that influence outcomes the most, morbidity and mortality. And, um, and it, you get the ones that have the most bang, um, most influence on recovery. There's also the functional comorbidity index, which is, you can Google it and pull that one off. And that's actually a, a self-report form that you can give your patients to score it. Yeah, maybe there's a way to make that a part of our intake process. That'd be great. Yeah, we could. You know, it's funny, you mentioned the the sleep thing. I can't tell you how much it's playing back in my head now, just telling me getting no sleep, getting no sleep, and high pain levels. And it's bi-directional, by the way. The end, you know, it's if you have a musculoskeletal injury, often it impairs your sleep because you can't get into a position of comfort. Um, but also, if you have sleep disturbances, it can actually amplify a person's symptoms. Um, a wow. classic example is fibromyalgia. You know, it is associated with non-restorative sleep, so they're not getting restful sleep. Um, we've done some sleep research in the military. It's a huge problem in the military. Over 30% will report um, abnormal sleep um, because of a number of things, stress and behaviors and, and whatever, but it markedly influences musculoskeletal outcomes. So it's definitely worth asking the question. That there are standardized uh, sleep scales. We actually reviewed all this, the scales and the psychometrics of those. That might be something I can send you to if you want. And yeah, absolutely. If somebody wants to have a self-report scale that a person fills out to, to understand the, the extent of the sleep disorder, it's, it's actually worth looking at. Yeah, and as OTs, I don't know about you know the, the, the PT language and practice act, but I know we can, that's something we can address as, as OTs. So. Yeah, it's not so big on the PT side, but I think my end, you know, I've always been a big fan of understanding prognosis and, and those things that are going to influence the recovery of an individual. I don't like surprises with patients. I want to know what to do with them, and I want to know what, how they're likely going to do with this particular intervention. And things like understanding the sleep disorder, comorbidities, the extent of the type of pain they have, whether it be nociceptive or neuropathic, 
um, all of those things give perspective, I think. Yeah. Let's transition into the cognitive and emotional pain. Can you give us a little definition of that? What some common things would be that, that people would see in the outpatient clinic of this and maybe some common interventions us therapists can provide for these patients? Yeah, I think the best thing that when you get to that category, it's more about cognitions, moods, and behaviors. And so when we get to cognitions, these are thought-related problems like fear, um, poor coping skills, anything that's related to the maladaptive thoughts that a person might have about their condition. Thoughts that may lead to a continued problem. This would be, you know, if I move this, it's going to get worse, or um, I'm not going to get any better. And, you know, all of these things that drive a person into a darker place. Moods are going to be uh, not depression, not clinical anxiety, not those pathological conditions, but it, it would be the, the emotions that a person wraps around their pain experience. And we know that these can markedly influence a person's recovery process because that and maladaptive thoughts tend to work together and the person um, really resists the getting back to being a normal individual. The nice thing about those is they're fairly easy to manage, whether through talk therapy or through treating the pain effectively often in, improves moods and cognitions. I mean, it's like lickety-split, it makes a big difference. The ones that are really difficult to manage is when a person actually changes behaviors. And that's, and you've seen this in your patients that maybe their spouse or um, partner will talk to you and say they're, they're completely different than what they were before. I'm worried about them. They don't do this. They don't socially interact. They refuse to do the things they used to enjoy. Um, those are behavioral changes. Behavioral changes are super hard to treat. Um, if it gets, they're often called pain behaviors. And you can recognize those by the way that that patient interacts with you. A lot of grunting, grimacing, holding on to the spot, um, being very um, telegraphic about their pain. Verbal com is completely focused on it. They bring a, their bag of medications. They have a notebook of their history of the condition. I mean, all of these things are people that are way into their, it's become them, so to speak. And the more patients with fibromyalgia that you treated, the more you recognize that they have become their condition. And that's a behavioral change. Those are exceptionally difficult to treat. The literature suggests that the success rates are not really strong for those. Um, but recognizing that, I think, is useful for clinicians to know that you're, you're dealing with a uh, higher order challenge there. Yeah. Did you say, maybe you categorized it under mood, unless I'm misunderstanding, but did you say uh, talking, like talking through the pain it is supposed to be a successful outcome? There's some literature to support that. So we know that neuroscience education and going in and talking about what pain is and um, what it means and how it isn't necessarily dangerous, that it has a, a conflict resolution component, but it won't improve outcomes. So if you're just a person that never touches your patient and just talk to them, you are not going to see a major change if you just educate them. 
Now, there are strategies to change thoughts and cognitions. That's different. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. But if you're just educating the patient about what pain is, the outcomes are not strong enough. Um, it does, if you ask the patient, is that useful? They'll say, yeah, it's very useful. I, I, I understand, but it isn't going to change the outcomes. So there has to be an additional component to that um, to get you over the hump. Okay. Let's kind of talk about those extremists that you mentioned. So I do have a few of those on my schedule and I'd say you almost, you, you don't look forward to them coming in. They're great people. You know, you, you want to do everything you can, but they're almost, nothing works. they're exhausting. Right. Yeah. Nothing and, works. and it's that anxiety. It just, it consumes their, it consumes the entire session. Their notebook of 20 things. Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? It's like, okay, we need to start over, slow down. How, where do you even begin to categorize that pain and how can you get them past that? Like, what are some good tips for our listeners? Well, it probably isn't going to be the conventional things that we do in clinical practice. We're going to have to really either get some help ex externally with a um, clinically trained or a behavioral psychologist, or we're going to have to use our own clinical and behavioral psychological treatment approaches. We're not psychologists, but we have, we can use a lot of the um, treatment approaches that they use and where you integrate activities, uh, graded exposure, um, and other challenges to the patient to see if they can start to incrementally improve. So they change their mindset around that particular area. They potentially change their behaviors. There's a lot of homework involved. They have to be committed to it. It is a definitely a two-person dance. In, in this particular case, if they're not willing to go there, you will not be successful. No matter how golden your words are or how good your hands are, it isn't going to be the thing that is going to make a difference. Um, they, it's, they have progressed to a full-blown behavioral change. In those particular cases, they tend to have chronic nervous system hypersensitivity too. So you're dealing with a legitimate amplified central nervous system. And when we see that, we also see, you know, a, a, a very heightened area of emotions. These people break down very quickly. They're very emotional. They will, they will cry during treatment. They get angry quickly. And it's because there's so much crosstalk in the central nervous system between the pain regions and the thought and cognitions and memory and, and emotional regions. Um, there's a physiological reason behind that. So you're right though, they're exhausting and extremely difficult to manage, um, but also super interesting. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. You almost don't even want to bring up the word pain because you just need to get the weighted blanket out right away to like calm them down. <laughs> right. But if you could use like different language or, or lingo or something to like bypass that and just get into the treatment right away, I think things would smooth out sooner, but so a weighted blanket, lavender, <laughs> and a cat. Yeah, right? yeah, right. right. And it warmed, heated. <laughs> Dr. Cook, for those behavioral patients, do you have a good, I know I just asked you for an example earlier on the comorbidities, but the successful story you had with those patients, because I feel like I strike out with those patients. It's very minimal, my success with those patients we're talking about. Oh, I strike out too. And um, I will tell you this, I, to me, the best success I've had is where I've gotten, and first of all, they don't move quickly. So it isn't something that, you know, like 
during the session, there's a light bulb went off in their head and they're like, hey, I'm ready. Um, that it is an incremental process. The best successes I've had where I've been able to show how their behaviors have actually working against them, where they've actually committed to the homework assignments. And at that point they realize, you know, I need a little extra help. And then I, I bring in, and I've been trained in chronic pain management, but the real artists here are the behavioral psychologists or the cognitive psychologists who can really, whose training is much stronger than ours in this area. And getting the patient to commit to being seen by them, I, I think is a victory. I have not had someone who has flat out said, you changed, I mean, I've had people, we've all had people say, you changed my life on this, but not for the reasons because I've completely changed their behavior and been able to turn them around. I've, I've fixed their rudder on their ship so that they can move forward. And to me, that's a success. But like you, I've had many lack of successes here. Yeah, let's transition in um, to the last category, I believe, on the pain and disability drivers model that we're going through. How about social and environmental factors? Yeah, that would be, if you listen to Zachary Thorne's podcast with you all, um, to me, that's the category we're talking about. It's where the person is, their, their safety, their housing, their food, their ecological stability, and what, what they're ecological environment is all about, but it's also work comp related, whether they're in litigation, you know, we've done a number of studies where we've actually shown that the worst outcomes, the exceptional non-responders is what we actually label them. Those were work comp and litigation all the time. They just don't get better. And through natural history, you normally get better over time, especially with musculoskeletal problems. If you have enough time, people improve, they don't improve. And so that's a social component too. And so managing those elements is a big challenge. I think Zachary does a really nice job of talking about engaging the community. I don't have any magic tips with respect yeah. to work comp or litigation or anything like that. Yeah. Settlement is, seems to be the magic fix in those environments. Um, and I'm sure you experienced that where there's been a you know, 180 turn Hey, I'm way better. So, did you get a settlement? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just makes a huge difference. Um, but you know, doing doing the right thing, believing them, managing their condition just the same way you would anybody else. Don't treat them any differently, but recognize that the social piece is probably influencing how they re report their outcomes, how they report their pain experience, and how they report their disability status. Yeah, well, one theme I'm, I'm picking up a lot across these last few categories is us really not taking so much ownership, but trying to bring in maybe other medical professionals and having these difficult conversations with patients that maybe we might be avoiding because it's not our area of expertise. But I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that that theme across these last few categories. Especially for those non-pain adaptive, chronic pain people who have a very altered pain experience, it's it's not a one-person shop that's going to make a huge difference with that. It, you know, no one's going to be the doctor on house that, you know, spits out some sort of genius 
explanation on why this is occurring and prescribes one medication that's going to make a difference. It just doesn't occur that easily. But I think part of it is recognizing what you're looking at. And I use the term pain adapted versus non-pain adapted. And what has happened is pain researchers are trying to phenotype and understand patients better on what sort of management they really need. You know, my profession, I'm a physical therapist, we're super guilty of jumping on the bandwagon of all these interventions. And most recently it's been, you know, psychologically informed care, pain education, et cetera. Everybody's doing that with everybody. You don't need to do it with everybody. Some patients are so flat out nociceptive and biological that if you find the right thing to do with that patient, they are pain adapted. They endogenously can manage their own pain well as long as you show them the way or give them the right treatment. That's all you need to do. You don't need to do all that extra stuff. It's a smaller population that fall into that non-pain adapted category of people who really don't respond to treatment very well. You know, after Zach's podcast, Steve and I were kind of talking like, wow, this is eye-opening. We don't really hone in on any of these problems with these patients, or are we not in a populated area where we don't have that lower socioeconomical patients that come in? You know, are we missing the boat with some of these patients? Are we not even, are we naive to it? Are we a little innocent to it because we aren't in a bigger city? Or are we just completely, we just don't have that population? You know, it's really kind of, it was hard to determine one way or the other, but you know, it's, it's the simplest things sometimes that we're missing. It really is. And, and it's important to know what the social components that Zach was talking about. It's not one thing, it's a combination of things. But it seems to be, two seems to be the critical number of really starting to send a person into the wrong trajectory, especially if they have bad insurance, and that would be Medicaid or uninsured, or if they, are, um, if they lack employment. Now, those two things tend to be the, they tend to swamp a lot of the other social components. And, and we've recognized that they swamp race, they swamp ethnicity, they swamp sex, they swamp all of those things. Those tend to be the ones that really move the needle. We, in, in a very large registry of spine surgery patients that we looked at, 44% of the 8,000 subjects that, <coughs> that we looked at 44% had two social risk factors or more. So it's a lot more common than what, what people think. And I know that by the time somebody goes down the road to spine surgery, they've kind of been through the business quite a bit. Mm -hmm. They probably have been unemployed. They've had some pretty significant pain. But 44% was a much higher number than what we actually expect. And there's yeah. a there's a common theme with those folks too. I feel like they they tend to doctor hop, therapy hop. And it's, it's really hard to get the full picture with them sometimes. It really is. And, you know, uh, there, there are expectations that people have. And, and you all probably know this, that expectations actually fall into the cognitions, moods, and behaviors element. And if a person has, they're fixated, their expectations about what they need for their care. And if you don't connect with them on those expectations, they will often either um, clinician hop, mm -hmm. or they just won't improve. And it's, 
know, there are studies in the shoulder that show that the person's expectations of their recovery are actually a stronger predictor of their outcome than the size of their tear of their rotator cuff. Hmm, interesting. So it's ex extremely powerful um, influencer in the overall outcomes of an individual. So right before my last comment, uh, you were talking about pain adaptive and non-pain adaptive patients. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, how do we identify them? Yes, it's actually pretty easy. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how they identify them in the research. They were looking for a response to a noxious stimuli and how, how the body actually reacted to that. And what they did is they took individuals and they dropped their hands in water. And what they saw was pain-adapted individuals had a quick ramp-up of pain. So they would rapidly report discomfort. And it's this, and you've probably done this before, right? You've dropped your hand in ice water and it's excruciatingly painful. Pain-adapted individuals will have a quick ramp-up and then a quick adaptation. It ramps down really fast so that they can tolerate that. Non-pain-adapted individuals will have a slower ramp-up it incrementally creeps up, but once it gets up there, it sticks and it does not ramp down quickly. They'll have a slow ramp down or an incomplete ramp down. So what we see in clinical practice and what we did in, there's a 2014 or 2015 study, I think we did the work in 14, published in 15, is we actually incorporated an oxygen stimuli to the patient to see how they would respond to it. And we did it in several ways. We had them do active movements. These were patients with low back pain, where we did repetitive in-range movements to see what would happen if it reproduced their symptoms and how quickly it would ramp them up. And if they continued those, how quickly it would ramp down, because that's a common clinical assessment that's used for the low back. We also did PAs, which is going onto the guilty facet and doing repetitive um, pressure on that oscillating pressure to see how quickly it would ramp up and then ramp down. And we wanted to see if it had a clinical effect. In other words, did it predict um, a person's recovery in 45 days? So we looked at that response at day one and then to predict if they were pain adaptive or not, and then followed them out for those who had success versus a lack of success. Because non-pain adaptive people do not tend to um, respond as well to conventional me mechanistic-based treatments. And sure enough, it was, I think the odds ratios were five. The, so the people that were pain-adapted were five, had five times the odds of non-pain-adapted with having a successful outcome at 45 days. So the big one was the PAs. It was the strongest predictor. So we have suggested to use that in, the, in clinical practice as a mechanism to identify if the person's pain adaptive or not. And they tend to be good candidates for manual therapy if they have a positive response to the PA or a pain adaptive response to that PA. So let's transition into that as going down, I guess, pain adaptive with manual therapy. But are you saying we literally take the patient's hand, you want us to put it in cold water and see what happens? Is that what we're doing in the clinic? I kind of want to try that now. <laughs> Is that what you're saying we should do? That's an option. Okay, <laughs> how many listeners right now did you just try that as Dr. Cook yeah, was explaining? Right? <laughs> I think I've got a better option for you, though. I, I would do, 
I would see if that individual responds positively to movement, whether it's active movement or passive movement, and if they can modulate their own pain endogenously through that movement. And so if they're a, um, if you're dealing with a collie's fracture and the person's gotten out of their cast and you have them start to move, initially it's going to be very uncomfortable for them to report sharp pain during the movement into that. But as they repeat that, if you see a quick spike of sharp pain and then a quick reduction of pain as they continue to move that, then I would say that that is very similar to doing a um, ice bath test. Um, it's giving you the same type of understanding of their uh, pain phenotype with respect to that. And that's what we did with the PAs. Um, so some form of active or passive movement and looking at that response is going to be helpful. If you think about a natural uh, person who falls into the non-pain adaptive, non-pain adaptive group, that's fibromyalgia. If you go through active movements, they'll say everything hurts. There's no pattern to it. There's no ramp up. There's no ramp down. It just stays the same all the time. And that would be a non-pain adaptive response. So it helps you differentiate what you're dealing with. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you, you typically find that there's a lot of other stuff going on that probably is related to that. Would you say there's a correlation with those non-adaptive pain patients and nociplastic pain? It's been my experience, absolutely. Um, there's also a very strong correlation because if you look at what non-pain adaptive means, it, it suggests that their endogenous or within body capacity to pain modulate is not great. And because of that, they tend to use external means to help modulate their pain. And those would be your heavy opioid users, our individuals that are on a lot of pain analgesics, or, I mean, a lot of people will uh, self-medicate with alcohol that have lost their endogenous pain modulatory capacity. So if you look at those individuals, they tend to be heavy medication takers. Um, and that's really the only thing that you know, takes the edge off the problem. So those patients are the ones that we need to be having those maybe difficult conversations with, talking with other medical professionals, maybe referring them out to somebody else? I think the first step, Steve, would be maybe talking about what you found in the examination. Okay. That maybe some of the conventional things such as move, movement and strengthening are not going to be as pain modulatory for them. So we're going to have to maybe choose some other things that will compound upon that. And that's where maybe some of the talk therapy elements might be useful. That's where maybe some of the lifestyle elements might be useful. Things that have been shown to assist somewhat in a person's pain, not endogenous pain, modulatory capacity would be resistance exercises, cardiopulmonary exercises. So going in and going to a gym and working out and doing things and getting back in shape can make a difference. But it's not going to be the only thing that makes a difference. But it also gives you some perspective of why they're um, medication seekers as because it's it's not just because it's easier than pain modulating yourself it's maybe they're just not as successful at it um, with internally I like the way you said that that was good I feel like our documenting skills 
in our pain category needs to... Sounds poor after talking yes. to Dr. Cook. Yes. Sounds very poor. So we are very basic. It's pain with at rest, pain with activity, uh, location, type, frequency, and then tell us about your sleep. Like that is it. And maybe it's because we're a busy clinic and we don't have time to really, uh, you know, gear in on that. But uh, after talking about this, that really needs to change. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, th that's the goal of the podcast is, you know, to educate our listeners and ourselves. And we appreciate that. Maybe even, would you say putting in documentation for clinicians listening ourselves talking about that? Hey, this patient did not have a pain adaptive response with, with movement. So the expectation might be maybe their rehab potential is fair rather than good or excellent. Is that fair to, there's not a lot of research on this okay. because we took a mechanistic study and we studied it on a clinical outcome study, right? We bridged mechanistic to clinical outcomes. That's one study. Yep. And, you know, the, and, and I think it's easy to second guess what one's doing in clinical practice. And it's easy to listen to somebody on a podcast, say, do this, do that. But in reality, you know, the first 10 patients you see, it'll be spaghetti on the wall and you'll look at it and you'll say, none of this is, there's no pattern here. And it, it's teasing out patterns when you can see them and recognizing there's always a little bit that it, there's, it, it's, it's easy to read a, a chapter and say, oh, there are three types of pain, but in reality, they overlap a lot and they're a lot more difficult to tease out. But it's useful yeah. to look for those things yeah. to get from perspective. Yeah. And I think of goal writing too, you know, you know, our foundation really for reimbursement is the goals, you know, what can we get you back to doing? And I, I'm very hesitant to put any pain goals in there because I don't have a, a quantity other than a number. Well, how do I prove that number, you know, and how do I measure that number? So I really avoid pain goals, but maybe I need to change my thought process on that. Well, I, I have a suggestion for you that you might like, yes. especially if you're dealing with, um, some really troubling patients. And are you familiar with the PROMISE pain interference questionnaire? No. It's four questions. And the, the questions, it, it does, it is reflective of pain, but it's around how pain interferes with their activities. So instead of asking an intensity question, which is almost downright useless on a chronic pain population, it's not a very good way to discriminate how much chronic pain, how it's influenced a person with chronic pain. Pain interference is exactly what we're looking for. It's how much pain is interfered with their lifestyle. And the promise pain interference questionnaire psychometrically is incredibly strong. And we, we just published a um, concurrent validity study in spine for low back pain, but it's used for all body part regions and it's free. Um, so promise is actually spelled P-R-O-M-I-S, four questions, that's it. And, and then it gets you away from, you know, being married to pain intensity, which I'm with you there. It's just like, I'm not going to write a goal on pain intensity because it's a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. But I, I would like to write a goal on pain interference because we're all about, I mean, OT started this before PTs did. It's all about adapting how they manage their condition to their lifestyle. And that's what you do in, in a lot of the treatments that are related to pain interference. 
Yeah, that's a great suggestion. We're definitely going to look into that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Cook, let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's go more into the the pain adaptive patient and the pain modulators. Um, what's the clinical reasoning for, you know, why exercise and manual therapy? I think those are the two most common that are provided in clinics. Why are they such good for pain modulators? Well, I actually know the manual therapy literature, the mechanistic literature more than the exercise. Okay. And uh, only because I've, I've, you know, I've been neck deep into this for a long period of time. But, you know, the reason why manual therapy tends to be effective on patients who are pain adaptive is because it has been shown to release or to increase serum levels of beta endorphins, beta cannabinoids, which are both, you know, pretty strong region specific um, pain modulators. It has a role in the autonomic nervous system pain modulatory component. It has a role in releasing Amino, uh, amino acid neuroreceptors, which are neurotransmitters, excuse me, that allow for descending pain modulation. So manual therapy has been shown mechanistically to influence those things. Clinically, it probably will then interact with the person's uh, expectations, their contextual factors, what they think is happening what the therapist tells them is happening, all of that interacts. And it's one of the reasons you see success, I think, with manual therapy. So it's not psychological, it's more contextual. And there is a physiological component to manual therapy, which is very similar to the same thing you see with exercise. So, I mean, there's science behind it. Yeah. And I, everything you said about manual therapy is how I think of it. I think it's input into the nervous system. Neurologically, something's happened and you're right. There's something about it when I guess I would be a pain adaptive patient because I don't know if, if I convince Cassie, Hey, can you do something to my shoulder? I'm a little irritated having the hands on me and maybe taking me through some motion, doing something that something about it feels good, feels right for me. And I think that is how I view it because we, we learned from our last podcast with you, we, doesn't have to be as specific as we once thought it had to be. No, you're spot on. It doesn't. Um, the very much the the thing that really spikes it or fuels it is that expectation piece of, of you know, well, yeah, they're doing exactly what my shoulder needs, and you know, they're moving in a way that it needs to be moved because it's not moving right now, and this is going to make it better. Those are contextual. Um, those those are super super powerful. So. You know, it's funny because this it can work for you and it can work against you, right? If you get somebody who is completely fearful of a, a manual therapy approach, you, you don't want to go in there and jump on them and do a manual therapy approach. You, you find something else. You know, find an active way of getting to the same um, result. I just went through a bout of, um, I'm still going through it, but I had a frozen shoulder. And I've had this for about five months, and it got to the point where it was... I mean, I had steady five out of seven pain and lost all my range in my left shoulder. And because I was going through the COVID injections, I couldn't go in and get a cortisone shot. Oh, wow. So I, you know, I was farting around with that for two months. Um, and finally went in and got a cortisone injection. And within three hours, my pain subsided, subsided 75 to 80%. And over a week, 
uh, my range is, you know, in 30, 40 degrees of range. And, you know, and I'm thinking, it's cortisone. You know, it has an anti-inflammatory component. It doesn't even have a pain analgesic component. <laughs> so why is it working so well? Well, one of the reasons it works really well is because I thought it was going to. <laughs> and, I was, and I felt that I know, I know what I need. I need an intra-articular cortisone injection. If I get that, you know, it's going to take me in the right direction. And it did. So, uh, you know, combining the mechanism piece with the expectation piece, that's really some of the best things that we can possibly do. We could help you with that frozen shoulder. <laughs> you might need to live closer. <laughs> Does anything show for pain modulation? Is active treatment better than passive? For pain modulation? Yeah, or vice versa? Or is it about the same? If you compare the results in comparative trials, they tend to do about the same. Okay. Um, most people, and I was just involved in a, a big debate um on youtube with someone about this and you know they, their comment was if i'm if i'm going to select an intervention i'm going to select an active intervention if i'm limited by time because the carryover is going to be better than if i select a passive intervention but that's assuming the patient's going to carry it over and most of the studies show that as soon as the patient starts to feel better they stop their exercises um it, I would love to think that our patients are, you know, five years down the road are, are, can continue to progress their exercise program and their lifestyle modifications and all the glorious tips that we gave them in the short time we saw them, but they don't. They tend to fall right back into what they were doing before. If you look at the comparative and effective studies, though, the passive interventions and the active interventions have about the same effect, a small and moderate effect. So as hand therapists, we have a, a little bit at our fingertips for pain control. You know, we have the uh, mirror therapy for like CRPS. We have the TENS. We have ultrasound. We have um, a lot of modalities that are like hands-off, the hot packs, you know, the cold packs. Are any of those, like, what are we really changing with all of those non-touching forms of rehab? So I don't know the literature as well for the hand because I don't treat the hand. Yeah. Um, so I apologize on that. If you, in general, some of the non-touching approaches, some of the, you know, modalities, tens, some of these elements, they have a very small effect. Uh, that effect, prob effect probably is related to contextual elements. In other words, the patient is going somewhere, being treated, getting something that they think is helping them which in turn makes, makes them feel that they're getting better. And, you know, we discount that. And some people say, well, that's placebo. It's not placebo. It's, it's a contextual component. It's therapeutic alliance. It's all of those elements. Um, the, the interventions themselves will have very small effects. But again, if we can compound those with expectations and other things and move the patient in the right direction, then there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I probably shouldn't uh, combine mirror therapy in with the rest of those <laughs> modalities because mirror therapy is a whole nother talk and different effects and different psychological components as well. But I guess I was just wondering, you know, what the literature was on that. So thank you for commenting on that. Um, so. Um, yeah, Doc, I, I think, I think now would be just a, a good transition. I mean, you've given us a lot of clinical pearls, a lot of information. I'm personally walking away with a better understanding of pain and 
maybe some things I can do to help better the outcomes of some of my patients I'm having challenges with. But, um, you know, we've said it all, but what would be the, the takeaways for this episode for people listening? I guess, I mean, one of the takeaways is, is that evidence is fluid and ever-changing. And, and we need to recognize that we need to continue to learn. And, and then some of the things that we might say today are going to be very different than what we might say later. I think the one thing that never changes is treating your patient with respect, making them be very committed to their recovery, because I think they know that. And, you know, those, those best clinicians are the ones who, the only person in the room is the patient. Um, when they're there, they're, they're there for that individual. And, and that piece should never change. Um, I think there's, and, you know, I, I've said the term contextual effects a lot. It's very powerful. There's nothing wrong with non-specific contextual effects. Those those things make a huge difference. If you are that avenue that patient is taking for the recovery process, then be the best avenue you can possibly be. That would be a takeaway. And the interventions you use are almost secondary to that. And, and that's pretty reinforced by the literature too. So I think that would be the, the takeaway. Great. Are you ready for another round of our three questions? I don't remember the ones you asked me. Before. All right. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, good. that's, that's probably good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, well, for, for those of you that don't know, Dr. Cook is a big bourbon fan. So for, I'd like to know what is the best bourbon you've ever had and you'd recommend. I would have, I mean, this, this is asking a very difficult question for me. It's like, who's your favorite What's child? That? Who's your favorite child, oh. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I would say Woodford Reserve Double Oak is is probably to me the perfect tasting bourbon. And but it also has a context to it. Whenever I travel, all of all I have a network of international friends. We always drink Woodford Reserve, so that that's our drink of choice. When we toast one another, we we toast ourselves with Woodford Reserve. You can get it anywhere. You, I first drank it in Dubai, and you know it's it's got a it's got a history to it. So I, I would say Woodford Reserve Double Oak. You have it's a almost perfect bourbon. You don't have a sponsorship for them, do you? <laughs> I don't. Okay, but I'm I'm willing to. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We'll be your test subject. Yeah, maybe maybe the three of us can get together and have a cheers in person sometime with the Woodford Reserve. That'd be awesome. Enjoy it. Yeah. Um. If you could be on any game show, which game show would you have the best chance of winning? Past, present, any game show? Oh boy. Um, winning? Yes, the best chance of winning. There would be none. None? My uh, reaction time stinks. Okay. Um, <laughs> my, I'm, I've lost my ability. Like I heard Zachary Thorne say that he has a, a brain full of useless facts. He does. I mean, <laughs> he remembers the nonsense that just doesn't matter. I no longer have that. That So, I, I mean, I would love to be on Jeopardy. Okay. I would literally get like 10 points. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I would be so slow. Negative 100. <laughs> right. Great. But um, I, there, there are no game shows that I would win. Okay. That's fair. I, 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 my okay. I, I would agree with you. I'd probably myself, I don't think there's anything I could win, but I think I'd like to be on Wheel of Fortune though. But um, 
nowadays we're in the streaming the streaming world of everything right so what in your opinion is the best show to binge watch wow um it, so you're gonna think i'm a geek but i, I think that it's called my my boys got me connected on it I, my sons are in their 20s attack of the titans attack of the it's, titans it's a um manga i think there are like seven seasons of it really okay really yeah so these it starts with these giant people breaking through these walls and eating all the other people oh my gosh like i'm in this is crazy (laughs) where do you see this right and but it's got a great background story to it it's very smart um it has a thousand different rabbit holes that it goes down it's um that's i binge watch that that's fantastic I was going to say, you don't have to worry about the listeners thinking, you know, you're a nerd. They're going to think the three of us are nerds for spending over an hour talking about pain. Yeah, you study (laughs) chronic pain, you know, say no more. Yeah, Yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time again, Dr. Cook. And I I hope we can definitely cross paths and bring you back on again. It was amazing to have you back on and chat. Well, it means a lot to me uh, that you invited me back. And uh, I appreciate both of you, your time and the and uh and thanks thank you we we appreciate your time thanks so much for listening to that episode of the podcast coming up next cassie and i are going to be chatting with dr garrett bullock from wake forest university we're going to be talking treating baseball pitchers in the hand clinic What can we do to best maximize our outcomes for these athletes in our clinics? And as always, if you guys have questions or topics you guys would like Cassie and I to cover, please reach out and email us at h2stherapist at newhands.net and we'll catch you on the next episode.